Arthur Penn sat down with moderator Steve Lawson for a one-on-one -on -one interview in April of 2002. I'm Susan Stroman, a member of Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, and this is Masters of the Stage. This program is produced and presented by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing. Because this program was not originally intended for broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. As a result, portions of the conversation may have been edited. Thank you for coming to the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation one-on-one -on -one with Arthur Penn. The Foundation, the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation, is extremely honored to be presenting this one-on-one -on -one conversation tonight with the very distinguished, remarkable Mr. Arthur Penn. what he's done because we'll be discussing that and our other distinguished guest uh, will talk a little bit about that. <laughs> we are also extremely honored to have interviewing with friend tonight Mr. Steve Lawson. Steve is the, as you can see in your bio, is the executive director of the Williamstown Film Festival, director of the Writers and Performance Performance Series here at NTC. I'd also like to thank NTC for the space. They, they host our events and it's really extraordinary uh, to have it here. It's a great location so I'd also like to thank him for that. Uh, he's won an Emmy, done a little bit of writing TV, a little bit of writing film, a little stage work. Sort of covered the gamut. I get bored easily. <laughs> Without further ado, I bring you two wonderful artists, Mr. Steve Lawson and Mr. Arthur Penn. Uh, just a quick precy, though you probably won't need it, of, of Arthur's career. For a half century or so, um, our guest tonight has been a name to reckon with in theater, film, and television. Uh, you may not know this. Um, I did, but I've forgotten that he's the only person ever to be nominated uh, for the Tony, Oscar, and Emmy for directing the same piece of material, The Miracle Worker. And if I mention Two for the Seesaw and All the Way Home and Toys in the Attic and Golden Boy and Sly Fox, they would also be him. And so would Bonnie and Clyde and The Left-Handed Gun and Alice's Restaurant little big man. He served as president of the Actors Studio for six years and is currently back on Broadway for the first time in two decades with his production of Fortune's Fool. I mean, of course, Arthur Penn. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get down to Broadway. We're just, we're just going to have applause for an hour and a half, right? basically. <laughs> so, uh, to begin at the beginning, Arthur, when did the uh, directing bug bite you? Where did that come from? Gee, yeah, it... it it's a bit down to story. <laughs> uh, I, I didn't have any directing bug. I was in the uh, uh, army in the war at the uh, in the Second World War, and I was in Europe when the war ended. And uh, I was in Germany by that point, and I got a three-day pass to Paris. Ran into a guy I had met at Fort Jackson, who was a uh, he came from a theatrical agency, the Sure Agency. I don't know if any of you know know about that, but it was. Uh, and he ran, we ran into each other on the street. He said, "Hey, you want to be in this soldier show thing? Uh, the army wants to start a show, soldier show program for the incoming army of occupation, and we're getting everybody who's around who is interested in theater." He said, I don't know about you, but I, you know, 
we had met in, in Columbia, South Carolina at the uh, community theater, just because I had nowhere else to go on a three-day <laughs> Anyway, they said, uh, we're bringing over 100 American actresses. And I said, yes. <laughs> and so I got, it, I got there, and I didn't know what, to, what I was to do. And, and they gave me a job as a stage manager. Uh, and and they did a production of Golden Boy with Billy Halep, who was one of the original Dead End Kids, a woman named Constance Dowling, and like that. And we started a tour around Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I may, I, I'm maybe going to go on too long, and if uh, if I am, uh, we'll, we'll switch. But what what the war in Japan was still on, so. Those of us who had been in the war didn't, didn't love the idea that we still might be called over to the Pacific. Uh, so when when the war was over, everybody who had had accumulated what they called points, which was the Congress gave you points if you were in the army, overseas, in in battle, etc. So all of us had those, and everybody left. <laughs> all the guys left. The 100 American actors still stayed around. And so they came to me and said, you want to run this program as a civilian? And I said, yes. <laughs> so I went into Heidelberg and got out of the Army uh, and ran, started running the program. And it was that credit that got me my first job in TV when I came back after going to the university and after the war. And, then, and what, was, what was that first thing in TV? It was... Uh, Holding cards from Milton Berle <laughs> at NBC. Aren't you glad I asked that? I mean, come yeah. on. <laughs> that, you know, in the so-called golden age of television, I mean, a, a slew of future filmmakers really cut their teeth. I mean, you, uh, certainly Frankenheimer, Sidney yeah, Lumet, Lumet and, uh, George Roy right. Hill, and, uh, Norman, uh, Norman Jewison, right? Norman Jewison, Norman yeah. Jewison. Jewison was in Canada. Well, that's right. No, uh, Bob Mulligan. Mm-hmm. And not a lot of us did, yeah. So how did you get involved with the Actors Studio in the, first, in the 50s? When I was doing a television here in New York, this was in the good old days when uh, Broadway was dark on Sunday, and our show was on Sunday night. So we had our pick of all these incredible actors who were desperate to do something besides the hit that they were in eight <laughs> times a week. So we had our pick of it. And... and I, you know, I worked with Kim Stanley and Jerry Page, and you name it. They were all on our show. Delighted to get 300 bucks or something to, <laughs> to do the show, because it was an opportunity to do something else. Right. So that was the Philco Playhouse. Mm-hmm. And uh, what was the question? <laughs> the Actor's Studio. Actor's Studio. I hired so many people from the Actor's Studio. Oh. That, that Strasbourg, I ran into Strasbourg one day and he said, you should be in the studio. <laughs> so I was in the studio. <laughs> Which I, I got to very infrequently in those days. I did uh, later on when I was right. working on Broadway. But at that point I had no free time at all. Right. Now how did, how did your, your first show, Two for the Seesaw, come about? There's a tale to everything. Oh, yes. Bill, Bill Gibson is a uh, the, the author is a, was a friend, a guy I met. And we uh, became very close friends. And finally, um, 
Peggy and I got married up in their house in Stockbridge. And so we were living up the road uh, from them. And Bill said, would you and Peggy listen to the first act of a play? So we came down and he read us the first act of Two Good Seeds. So I said, Jesus, this is wonderful. This is in the days when it was a three-act when, when um, he said, I wish I had the money to finish this damn thing. I can't, I can't get, you know, I'm just broke. And he had two kids at that point, and life was very tight. And, he, you know, he's a, he was a poet. That's, that's what... So I said, tell me, did you ever write anything else that... He said, you know, I once wrote a dance narrative about Annie Sullivan and Helen Keller. Uh -huh. I said, you really? Tell me the story. So he told me the story. I said, let's, let's sit down and, and, and sketch it out. And uh, he did. I mean, he's got impeccable dramatic sense. I said, I promise you, I'll get you 500 bucks for this. <laughs> Don't you know, I took it to NBC and they turned it down. I took it to CBS and they turned it down. They said, who? Yeah, that one. That blind kid on television <laughs> in the American home. I mean, they were appalled. Anyway, at that, shortly thereafter, um, a, a, a program called Playhouse 90 was just starting, and a friend of mine was the producer of it. And here was a guy given the task by CBS to produce a 90-minute dramatic show once a week. Imagine. And he was desperate. So he came to New York and he hired all the directors that you just talked about and said, have you got anything? Have you got anything? And I sent him the miracle worker and he said $10,000 on the way. Whoa, to Bill. Oh, God. And so Bill finished two for the seesaw. I did, <laughs> I did the miracle worker on television and I shot a movie, the, my first movie. Right. And said, the hell with Hollywood, this is terrible. <laughs> uh, got out of there, came back, and there was Seesaw, ready to go, except that his agent said, oh, Arthur Penn, we're not going to go with him. <laughs> you know, we, we can get anybody you want. So Bill very gallantly said, no, that's the way I want to go. Oh. You know, Miracle Workers always seem to me to be a very tough piece. I mean, a delicate and yet tough at the same time. I mean, finding that balance between what is a very grim premise, basically, and then the danger of sentimentality, to some extent. I mean, how did, how did you sort of find that balance of putting the production together? Well, the, the, the great secret that comes down from the mountain is cast well. <laughs> because when I did it on television, with all due respect, I, I, I didn't have the best cast in the world. And then when I came to New York, I was determined to, you know, really do it with serious people. Uh, I don't mean that the woman, uh, uh, Teresa Wright, who would play Daddy Sullivan, wasn't capable, but she wasn't hard-edged enough. She'd been in Hollywood a long time, and that takes the edge off anything. <laughs> So I was looking for somebody, and uh, we all were, and uh, we couldn't find anybody, couldn't find anybody, and finally somebody told us, there's this woman, Anne 
Anne Bancroft. Uh, she'd done six B movies, and that was it. So we had her in. She came in through the door. She said, where's John? <laughs> and I got a glint in my eye. That's the girl. And boy, was she ever something. Yeah, I still remember that. Was, I think it was one of the very first plays I ever saw in New York. I was in fifth grade. And my teacher was a friend of Annie's. She took me backstage to meet her. You can imagine what that was like for a 10-year-old seeing this performance. And I still have, I throw nothing out, the playbill that she signed for me. You know? It's probably worth something, damn it. They were extraordinary. <laughs> and there was no degree of sentimentality in that production. Mm -hmm. There just wasn't. It was, it was a tough, hard-minded play. Because uh, we had done some research. My wife and I went up to the Perkins School for the Blind. And you have to be in the presence of a deaf-blind child to, to see that sentiment. There's no room for sentimentality. There's room for sheer existence, and existence at, at, at the hardest imaginable level. Mm -hmm. And we saw some children who, on whom this had not worked, yet worked, or hadn't, would not, was not going to work, which is a very abstract idea. It is the idea that language contains experience representation of experience so that you tell somebody and we talk to each other in words you know what happened to me in the cab coming down you know etc well fancy that you don't have the, 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 the word system by which to file experience and what happens then is that without that without that symbolic system the brain goes to sleep that's what happened to a lot of these children that were at Perkins. Um, the miracle was the, the miracle of Annie Sullivan, that she did this without precedent, without anybody ever having done it before. So, so the play was obviously a great success. What were the particular challenges of turning it into a, into a film? Oh, I thought there were no challenges at all. I, I mean, really. I, I, you know, this is only my second film, so um, I, 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 I did it. But, but the real story, and this is a story for those of you who may be wanting or are involved in film as well as stage, the end scene uh, on the stage is, is simply riveting in the theater. They come tearing out of the house and they go to the pump, and Annie starts to pump, and she's spelling water into Patty's hands, and water hits him. And you see this thing register in the child's head, that there's a correlation between this and that experience. And it's terrific. It's absolutely devastating. So when we came to... I, I was shooting the movie, went along about the third week we were going to shoot that scene. And I said, there's one, one way to shoot this, which is do what exactly what happened in the theater. Get back here on the lens and let them come tearing out of the house and shoot it. And that's just the way we did it. And then I looked at the dailies. I'm going to die. <laughs> right here. Right now. It's terrible. It was terrible. And what it was, was the very, for me at least, the essence of cinema versus the stage. 
when you're in the theater and you're in the rapture of a play, you do your own editing. And you're picking out what it is you want to pay attention to and what concerns you. And your, your mind is able to dismiss the others. When you're shooting it on a 50 millimeter lens or a 35 millimeter lens and all that stuff is up there, you don't have the choice. And so what I, I did when I recovered from that is I said, <laughs> tomorrow we shoot this scene. And I said, and what we're going to do, get me a close-up lens and here we go. And I said, I'm going to pick the spots where I want our attention to be and nothing else. And so that, that's, that's what it is in the, in the film. It's Annie, could, you know, they come running out and there's Annie pissed off and then there's Patty bewildered and these are close-ups and then the hands under the water and the hands spelling and Annie's face saying water, 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 Patty ignorant, ignorant, bam! And that moment happens and it's in a dead close-up. You see this child go. And at that point, you know, we had a film. Yeah. And I learned uh, movies right then and there. Right. I learned how to, how to at least be selective in making a movie so that you don't generalize, so you don't get stuck in the general. And uh, uh, the specificity of movies is so intense that you have to be very careful. It's a seductive medium, and you have to be very careful when you do pick those moments that they are the, the precious moments that you want to go in for. Otherwise, one of the temptations is either to be too close or to be too loose. It's that, that bizarre uh, kinetic combination that makes for the mystery of cinema. Now, considering how brilliant Bancroft was on stage, uh, tell me if this is not correct. I've heard a story, and it may be apocryphal, that some producer, when the time came to make the film, wanted Elizabeth Taylor. Yeah, they, uh, to the studio. <laughs> wanted Elizabeth Taylor, and they said, if you, if you don't want Elizabeth Taylor, because I said no. Uh, they said, well, what, what about Audrey Hepburn? I said, no. <laughs> We, because I, the, the, the history of the, there's a story to everything <laughs> uh, we did two with the seesaw and it was a nice big hit and, and in those days the, uh, Ray Stark a studio could buy the rights and start the film even when the play was still running so lo and behold they bought the rights to two with the seesaw they didn't want Bill Gibson to write the script. They didn't want me to direct it. They didn't want Annie Bancroft. They didn't want Fred Coe to produce it. They were, they knew how to do this. Bob Wise was going to direct it. Um, Robert Mitchum was going to play on this part. And Shirley McLean had the other part. And they started work on it. And they started to rehearse. And we get a call from Ray Stark saying, could we, uh, we'll pay you for this. Could we come in and photograph a performance of the play? Because uh, we, 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 we can't find the jokes. <laughs> 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 I 
And of course, there were no jokes. <laughs> there were about as many jokes in, in, in uh, Fortune's Fool as there are to the seashore. They're, it's behavior. It's all behavior. See, we said no. No. Uh, so when, when we came then to do Miracle Worker, we all decided we were going to stick together. And Fred was going to produce it, Bill was going to write the screenplay, Annie was going to play it, and I was going to direct it. And that's where we stood. And we stood our ground with uh, the United Artists. And both ladies won Oscars. Yeah. Now, Toys in the Attic, which of course you did, was by Lillian Hellman. Now, how did you get on with her? Warily. Actually, it, it was an interesting play, but uh, uh, well, I just I don't want to get into level of gossip, so we won't do that. Oh, but uh, what happened was we we started to rehearse over at the Hudson Theater, and Lillian was sitting alongside me, and, and every time somebody would not do a line right or do a move right, she would. <laughs> And finally, I, I said, you know, that's enough. I can't stand this. I said, Lillian, look, uh, you don't like what we're doing. I understand that. Uh, if you want to get rid of us, get rid of us now. Fire everybody and, and start all over again. If not, go away. <laughs> go away. Four or five days and come back then. And give me a chance to work in an atmosphere where the actors don't feel like they're on the block, you know, about to be executed. <laughs> Which was exactly the way they felt. So she went away and came back five days later. She said, this is not bad. Now, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Golden Boy with Sammy Davis Jr., were you at all worried about tackling a musical? And that was a departure, wasn't it? Yeah, that <laughs> one. Um, yeah, that, again, that's the story of uh, Bill Gibson. I'd known Sammy when I was a floor manager for NBC, and he was a performer with the Will Maston Trio. And so I knew Sammy many years prior to this. Now, Bill Gibson had um, a, a very close friendship with Clifford Odets that started at the Actors Studio when Clifford was running the program for playwrights, and they became very close friends. Clifford Odets had had the idea to start this and, and to have Sammy, a black actor, play it and be about a black family. Um, so they went ahead and they got all of it ready, and then Clifford died. And they had a bad book. The, the show was already open. They had a British director, about which I will ill but uh, he, he wasn't there when I got there uh, he'd, uh, he'd already left um, so they prevailed on Bill they said to Bill Bill you gotta come in and work on this because uh, the Clifford's two children <laughs> are gonna be without money if you you know if this show is not a hit and you can hear the violins in the, in the background you know and 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 Bill, you know, was very taken by that. So he went to Boston, and I was in Stockbridge having a summer, 
I thought. <laughs> Back comes Bill. And said, oh, Jesus, this is just terrible. It is just terrible. But I've agreed to do it. If you'll do it. With me. So I, I said, well, let me go see it. And then I went to see it, and it was unspeakable. <laughs> it was really bad. So then I met with Sammy and the producer. By that time, the producer, his back was out so far <laughs> that he was lying on a, on a gurney. <laughs> and Sammy was begging me, come on, on. Uh, you know, as old friends, come on. Comedy hour days, do we? So I finally said yes. And then we started, and we rewrote the entire show. We did everything. We, we did everything. Everything but, the, but about five numbers. And, uh, With Charlie Strauss, wasn't it? Yeah, Charlie Strauss and, and uh, Lee Adams. And, and I got Herbie Ross to come in and do some dances. And, uh, and that was it. And we, and we just about made it, really. I mean, two nights before we opened on Broadway, I wouldn't have given you a nickel for it. <laughs> Um, what grabbed you about uh, Wait Until Dark? The fun of it. I, uh, well, so here's this out-and-out melodrama. That's very different. Yeah, I, but it was... I had just done a string of uh, sort of serious plays, except for Nichols and May. That, right. was, that was fun. I had a wonderful time. But the others were all... The Miracle Worker, Toys in the Attic, all the way home, you know, and, uh, and I thought the idea of doing a thriller, and it was a, it was a good script, it was fun, and I had Lee Remick and uh, Bobby Duval, and uh, so, you know, it, it was fun, it was just fun, and it, it's, it's, it's a terrific theater piece, I, I, from what I hear, those of you who may have seen it recently, I uh, don't, know, don't know what it's like because it was apparently a mess. But uh, it, was a, it was just a beautiful piece of theater. And there's a moment in it where the audience is absolutely shrieking out of their seats. I mean, and we would hit it right dead on the nose when he leaves. Night, when he comes out. She, you think he's dead? Yeah. 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 Right. yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I don't know what Quentin Tarantino did to that. <laughs> uh, not much. Did um, did Larry Gelbart come to you with Sly Fox? How did that happen? No, I came to him. Uh-huh. Um, I, you know, I was passionate about the studio, and the studio was really on its ass at that point financially. And so I thought, well, I could do... Uh, I had an idea and I, to do Ball Pony as a, as a real comedy, a farce. And uh, I thought, I'll do this. I'll, I'll, I'll get a bunch of people from the studio. We'll do it on television. We'll get a lot of money. <laughs> so I called Larry and I said, uh, how, how would you like to do this? He said, I don't know that play. I said, you should read it. And, and then let me know. So he read it and he said, and you, and you think this is a farce? And I said, yeah, it seems to me it is. And he, he quite agreed. And he as a friend sort of wrote it, wrote a draft of it. So I took that draft to a guy named Fred Silverman, who was then running CBS program. And this is in 
She turned it down. So I arranged a reading at the studio one night and uh, got Art Carney to play the lead. The, the George Scott part. The George Scott part. Right. I got Lee Strasberg to play the Jack Guilford part. <laughs> and uh, Anna Strasberg was in it as uh, Miss Fancy, etc. And then, you know, and about 50 people. We just had just sort of studio and they were absolutely rolling out of their seats, you know. So my wife said to me, you know, during, in the middle of it, enough charity, do this on Broadway. <laughs> <laughs> so I did. I, I got my agent called up a guy and said, we got a script by Larry Yelbach. Arthur Penn wants to direct it. And, and he said, yeah, I'll, I'll give you the money. I'll give you. So he gave us the basic money to start with it. Then the Schubert's came in. Everybody came in. When we got George Scott, right? And, uh, what was it? What was it like working with Scott? Not fun. <laughs> <laughs> Lily and Helmut move over. Huh? <laughs> well, this was different. This right. was uh, George o was tough. He was, I mean, he was wonderful, absolutely superb when he was there and functioning. But then, if he disagreed with. He wouldn't say, I disagree with you, or no, I don't think so. <laughs> and you knew you were in trouble. I mean, about, he'd come back three days later, having been on a little bend there. Mm -hmm. And that's the way it went. <clears throat> but it was, it is one of the funniest damn shows. It makes noises off look like a funeral. <laughs> Um, let's talk a bit about the film side of your career. How, uh, what was the genesis of the left-handed gun, your first film? It had been done on television, on, on our program on television. Mm -hmm. I hadn't done it. Uh, Bob Mulligan did it. And uh, Gore Vidal wrote it. And then uh, Fred Coe was, gonna, was, was asked to produce it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was just doing Playhouse 90, uh, starting Playhouse 90 then. And he asked me if I would direct it, and I said, yes. And then <clears throat> Gore was also unavailable, and frankly, I was not so fond of the Gore Vidal script. So I, I said, I, I, I want to get a friend of mine, and the two of us will write a, a version of it. And we, we did it. Leslie Stevens, um, this play I had worked on on Broadway, um, we did a version of it, and we had Paul Newman. Uh, and that was my first film. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you a funny story. Very, very, very But in live TV, all of us, uh, what you did was you um, you rehearsed with the actors, and then you went home with blueprints of the set and these uh, plastic overlays of a <laughs> lens size, right. you know, uh, 50, a 75, a 35, what it would show you. 
Well, I was totally used to that. And uh, when I got to Hollywood at the Warner Brothers, we were this little movie that nobody was paying any attention to. And I, we were going to shoot it in 21 days, I think. So I thought, gee, I got to get And it was various locations and the old set of Juarez and so forth. So uh, what I did is I figured out this this the way I wanted to shoot it and the camera, the lens I wanted. And I just wrote that on a Dixie cup and nailed it into the ground all around the set. And out on, you know, on the planes. I mean, well, you got to see a Hollywood cameraman come up and see this. <laughs> what, what is this shit? <laughs> and I said, well, those, those, that, that's where we're going to be with the, you know, <laughs> with the lens. Uh, <laughs> they weren't happy. They weren't happy. <laughs> this was a, Pev Marley was his name. He was married to Linda Darnell. So we started shooting, and it was it was it was tense. And uh, one day we were shooting, and, and Pev was standing there, and a, another crew went by and said, "How's it going, Pev?" He said, "I got one of them TV guys." <laughs> <laughs> Of death. Yeah. <laughs> well, what it was was really a revolution. They didn't know it. We didn't know it. But the ten guys that came out there that they hired because they got panicked. All of a sudden, their audiences dropped off totally. Television was everything. So the Hollywood solution: go hire those guys who were doing this magic act. You know. <laughs> so we got hired, and it was it was a revolution. Because we, we said, no, that's not the way we do it. They were, they were so uh, rigidified and, 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 and in the system and under contract to the studios. And this is the way we always did it. And we shot this way. And, and, and all of a sudden, this bunch of nuts came out there who are used to doing live TV on their own. So we, yeah, we had invented it sense that medium you know every every three months there'd be a technological jump and we would incorporate that into it all of a sudden a zoom lens came into existence wow terrific so we started using that and 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 that was not not a great pleasure to the hollywood establishment at that point so and it happened at all the studios i mean i was at warner's at that at that point they didn't know what to make of us. They just didn't know what to make of us. And, and they were, it was an audacious group of guys, most of whom were, were veterans, you know, which I, I've always thought figured in it. We had come through the war. We, we, were, we were there. You couldn't scare us in that sense. You know, don't, don't scare me. With, that's not the way we do it. Which is bullshit, you know. I do it my, my way. And... and that's the way we were all working. We weren't, weren't much of a touch, much touch with each other. But Frank Shafter was at Fox. I don't know where John Frankenheimer was, someplace else. But everybody was suddenly started grinding out these movies that were un, 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 unexpected for Hollywood, and they were knocking at the box office in a peculiar way, while the big movies were not. And they were utterly... Well, I remember the year 
rather vividly because it was the year I went to college when Bonnie and Clyde came out in 67 because that was still the era when they thought they could make these big lavish musicals like Camelot and, or, and they were all like expiring down the tubes and then along comes a film like Bonnie and Clyde or The Graduate or you know Midnight or whatever that suddenly the whole tone changed you know yeah and that, that was even the latter later part this, right. this, I'm talking about really in, in the late 50s. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's really 10 years before that. Right. That then John did, uh, uh, Frank and Allen did uh, Manchurian Candidate right. during that mm -hmm. period. Frank Schaffner started doing stuff. So, you know, it was it was quite a group of, uh, of directors. Right, right. Um, you know, I remember, I, I told Arthur just before the fact that I was going to bring it up. I first saw him my freshman year in college in 67, and the film had just come out. Bonnie Clyde was creating quite a stir. And Arthur came up to Williams College where I was going to give a talk. And I still remember you saying one thing that's been on my mind for 34 years, and I'm glad I could finally ask you about it. You said at one point something, a very simple line, but it was so provocative to me. He said, I think Bonnie and Clyde probably lived something like us. Do you remember saying that? 34 years ago? <laughs> how, how shocking. <laughs> I was just curious as to if... You did say it, and I was wondering what what that what you meant by that. It was such an interesting well, I, I line. I think if 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 I can make up something, I, oh, please do. <laughs> I thought I, what I was saying, I think, was that I think the behavior was behavior, not not not. I, I mean, I don't think that Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway were Bonnie and Clyde, or Bonnie and Clyde were there. But uh, but but what we. What I, I think was was that it was when when you the example you used before Estelle going to the refrigerator and, and look what the rotten food well that's what any one of us would do right. and and uh, I got to the set the first morning to shoot the beginning hey boy what are you doing with my mom's car, car. Right. I didn't know where I was going to by now I'd gotten a lot more reckless and uh, <laughs> I was not going to come in with the camera all figured out and there was Faye this absolutely exquisite woman and uh, we got most of her clothes off and I looked at her <laughs> Jeez, but what do I what do I want to focus on what do I, <laughs> no, this, is, this is serious I'm like, Without, without really being conscious, appetite, appetite, that's what. This is a world of appetite. Something, another life, another life. And I just, and I started doing that, and I went in, and we started on our lips. And I said, that's where it starts. And it came from an acting metaphor, which is appetite. I want something different. I want something. And so she... Uh, you know, and then they swore that she got up naked and went to the window. Of course, she didn't. But she gets up off the bed after we we see her banging on the bed, and down in the street, Warren is trying to get into her mother's car, steal it. She goes to the window naked. They say, <laughs> stands there looking down, and says, "Hey, boy, what you doing with my mama's car?" And there you go. And these were all simple behaviors. I still remember Beatty wonderfully performing that. Yeah. Kind of obviously, how much could he see at that angle? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
cross pieces, of course. Yes. <laughs> a window. But uh, that was it. That was it. So I, if, if I meant something mm-hmm. back in that it was 34 years ago, yes. it would have been that that I wasn't seeking a kind of special behavior for these people. I was going to go with mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the behavior that we all practice. Um, then next came Alice's Restaurant. What? What? Not interested right. you? Wasn't it? Right. right after Body and Right, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's about five movies. Yeah. Are we? Yeah. 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 Right. But I was interested because what, what about Alice's Restaurant was particularly compelling to you? Well, I, I mean, I lived in Stockbridge. That's where it happened, of course. Uh, but, and I knew a lot of the kids. But uh, somebody came over one night and said, I played, they said, have you heard Arlen's new song? He'd done a song down at the Newport Jazz Festival, which was Alice's Restaurant, which was absolutely wonderful. And he played it from Peggy and me. And I, I thought it was just terrific. And then the next night, we go to one of those really stuffy dinner parties. <laughs> At the end of the stuffy dinner party, somebody said, I'd, I'd like to play a record for you. And played Alice's Restaurant. <laughs> I thought, if it works for us and it works for these people, there's a movie. There's, an <laughs> there's a crossover movie. There you go. Know, right yeah. you know, I'm very fond of that film. I still remember the very last shot when Pat Quinn, who played Alice, is standing in the door of the church, and you know she's going to leave for a commune, and there's no dialogue, and you, you have the camera just stay on her, going back and coming in, and then kind of circling. It's, it's like the end of something, and you don't quote, not just the end of the film, it's like the end of something. It's very powerful ending yeah, of them. That, that's not exactly right. Well, right, it, is, right. it was three days to get that one shot. And what it is, it was an attempt to fix her in the mind of Arlo and the people who had been at this commune, or sort of, sort of commune, and, and and they were, they were having to, they were now drawn away from her, but that she would reside with them forever. So I wanted, I wanted a, a, a shot where we would be pulling away and staying there at the same time. So the obvious thing, of course, is a dolly shot back and a zoom in. But when we did it, it, it didn't any of it show. It just was dead. And so what we did is we, we cut some tree trunks and we put them along the, the dolly track, you know. And we moved past this tree stump and then past this tree stump going like this, like this, and zooming in. So we had an object in the foreground which was taking us away, and we were going in and staying, so she remained the same size. And that was the idea, again, metaphorically. Again, working metaphorically. Which is really with, with what I mean to be saying here is with the actor's imagination. It's with the actor's attitude apart uh, that is your richest resource those of us who direct that, that's where the goal is, is in, in the actors and if you can liberate that and and then liberate them to the point where they begin 
to allow their imagination to be more dominant, this is really underlying, more dominant than the dialogue. The dialogue is the biggest prison for actors because it comes so soon. We sit down with a play, new play, How? what do we do with it? We read the damn thing. And then the next thing you know, everybody's talking about my line. <laughs> and what the hell has that got to do with anything? What, what's your line? No. You have a line? You don't have a line. You have an attitude, a response. And, and that's what we want to go. Jack Pratt. I mean, it's absolute conviction. I mean, it's extraordinary. I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful piece of work. Yeah, is, I it, think. You know. It is. It's a wonderful film. How, did, 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 was he on it originally, and then you came on, or vice versa, yeah, or how did that work? No, no, no. I was, I, it was mine. Right. Um, I was working on a film, on an on a original screenplay with Jack Richardson, and uh, I read in the New York Times about a, a review of this book, uh, Little Big Man. And I thought, gee, that would make wonderful research material so I got a copy of it and bang, that was it. I said, this is the movie. This is the movie. This is the movie. I want to do. So we we uh, we went to work on it. It took us six years. Six years to get a studio to agree to make a movie about where simple Indians, Native Americans, would be represented sympathetically. Hollywood's a great place. <laughs> <laughs> One reason we're all here tonight, obviously, is that Arthur is, is back on Broadway after a long time with Fortune's Fool. What, what, what drew you to the play? Uh, I just read it. They, they sent it to me. Mm -hmm. Alan Bates and, and, and his son and the man who adapted it, Mike Poulton, uh, had done it at the Chichester Festival. Uh, five years, six years ago, and it was uh, badly received and uh, got bad notices. And Alan, nonetheless, had had a longing to do it again. And uh, I think one of the things he wanted to do was to work with his son in America because his son was now living here. And uh, somehow it made its way from Mike Poulton, who had adapted it, to Rita Gam, who is a friend, and she brought it to the producers, who sent it to me through Rita's urging, having been, she was an actress at the actor's studio, and she had done a scene one day, and I had criticized it. Uh, productively, she thought. <laughs> So she thought that I would be interested in this. And indeed I did. I read it one night and said, yes, bang. It was, a, it was just the kind of play I wanted to do. I was hungry to get back to the theater, but um, what, what was around was not all that interesting. Mm -hmm. So uh, I took it. Right. I mean, it's, a, it's quite a ways from two for the seesaw to Fortune's Fool. What, what is the, coming back, now what is to you the biggest change in the climate of the theater nowadays versus when you started? Oh, what's the difference? 
Well, for one thing, there was a, a much, much larger audience. There was an audience that had been used to going to the theater, that was a theater where, where the children of people who had been going to the theater. So there was a vast pool of people who were at least to a certain degree habituated to the theater. I can't say that that's true now. There's a small minority of us who, who love the theater particularly. But, but we're smaller and smaller, and more and more people... Now we have a whole generation of skipped writers who came out of it being educated and went right to Hollywood. And they're out there now hanging on a vine, getting their pictures, you know, picked up, optioned, and dying, and absolutely dying. I mean, it's a, gen it's, a, it's a place I wouldn't want to have to live in. It forced me. <laughs> <laughs> it's terrible, because the defeat, the disappointment, the, the negativity that ex is exuded out there, uh, I gotta, I gotta go in and I'm gonna pitch this film to these guys. There's this absolutely magnificent story of, of Fred Zinnemann, you know, the man made High Noon, uh, the men uh, from here to eternity. Man for all seasons. Yeah, man for all seasons. Another uh, story. At a point when Fred was quite quite advanced in years, he was out in Hollywood, and they said somebody said, "Oh, I'd like to." bring you over to, and he have you meet this new head of production at one of the studios. And so they brought him in very cordially and everybody shook hands. And then the young man sat down behind his desk and said, now tell me, Mr. Zimmerman, what have you done? <laughs> and he said, you first. <laughs> and that's the way it is. And that's the way it is. I mean, I, I go out there, and uh, on, on the very rare occasions, I go out only these days for the Directors Guild you know, meetings. But uh, yeah, and and uh, I'll meet executives. You know, who'll say, well, you know, are you are you going to do any films? And I say, no. Or uh, or what have you got? You got anything interesting? You know. No, but, uh, you know, I studied you. I studied you in film school, you know? Okay, so what? And then, what's the next move? They go out and make one of these crash, trashy, you know, exterminator films. <laughs> I'm sure, um, let's open it up to you guys. Who has a question for us? Uh, yes. Can you talk us a little bit through the process of Sure. Approach. I'll talk to you about that uh, uh, willingly, very willingly. I worked at uh, working working at the actor's studio. I kind of developed a theory uh, to go back to the point of of the <clears throat> treating the dialogue as as the enemy uh, if it's inflicted too soon on the actors. So uh, here, here were this bunch of actors, and uh, Mary Kate back there, can, who was assisting me, can either verify this or tell you that I'm making it up. <laughs> making it up. But, uh, 
I, I said to them, I, I want to, we're going to read this through. We read the play through once. And they, they were all familiar with it. And I said, now, now, let's get down to work. Let's take a big scene. We take a big scene. And, I, and they read it down the table. And I said, okay, now leave your scripts here and get up and do it. Not improvise. No, improvisation is, is used way too loosely. It's, it's, it has a very distinct function. And we mustn't call what, what getting up and using your own words is. Is, 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 is improvisation. It's not. What they did here, and what, what the purpose of this is, is to see what of the material has, has struck a note in their heads. Not the dialogue, but what experiential. So they're up there just trying to do what was took place in that scene, except that they're doing it out of their own vocabulary, emotional vocabulary. And that's the way we work. And we did that scene after scene, and two scenes together. And finally, after a couple of weeks, we had a version of the play up going on, on its feet. There was a mixture, of crazy mixture of a little bit of dialogue and a lot of personal utterances and and uh, and then slowly the dialogue creeps up into the play instead of the other way around is that accurate mary kate for instance, with George Moore Foley, who was so brilliant, uh, he doesn't have dialogue, but his moves are punctuated and accented. Are you setting that, uh, or is George setting that? The same with the young man, uh, Tim Doyle, I think, playing Fish. Uh, I mean, in, in the second act, uh, Frank Langella, I think, and uh, Benedict uh, down center, and he's upstage turning, twisting, Looking and so focusing that scene, who's setting that? Is he or you? They said, the actors said, the actors block it. The actors more focusing setting all of that. They, every night, yeah. different, different, different. Sure. It's not absolutely bang on every night at all. Some nights Frank has to be <laughs> picked up with a lasso. <laughs> brought back to the real world. That's right. <laughs> he's, a, he's a great actor. He's a brilliant actor. You know? No, no. We, I, I mean, there were little moments when I would intervene, but they were not, this is what you do on this line, and this is what you do on that. It was really a, 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 a mutually arrived at, uh, collaborative work. Did you say that's it? That's the moment. That's what I'm looking for. No, no. no I don't say that. I, I really, uh, the actors arrive there. I mean, uh, there, there's, there's a certain level at which, uh, if somebody did something way outside the boundaries of the circumstances, I would be concerned. But I was never really greatly concerned. Uh, the big scene in the play is the drunk. 
And there we were in Stanford, and we were starting to play this play, and it was not funny. It was just not happening. And, and, and I said, you know, essentially, it will happen. I promise you, it will happen. Well, shouldn't we? What should I do here? Whatever you like, you <laughs> Gee, I don't know. That's my that's my most favorite line. Gee, I don't know. <laughs> and then and then slowly, and then when everything was in place, suddenly one night we started replaying it, and ha ha, in the audience, and away they went. And the actors got it. They knew where they were at that point in the development. They have it. They do it every night, somewhat differently, but also somewhat the same. Yes. Uh, when when did you did you know that you were going uh, to introduce that method in this particular production, or if you were going to do that at all? Well, I went in with that. With that. I had made that not because I'd had the experience which you know about yeah. particularly where I'd done it at the actor's studio with with Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf where they uh, we did a whole production of it uh, done this way and and eventually you know, I think it was just the best production of Virginia Woolf I've ever seen including the original which was not very good <laughs> oh I <heard> <laughs> <laughs> and we happen to have Uta Hagen in the back. Yeah. So. <laughs> Which, uh, let me just throw one thing here, but I think it's a question we'd all be interested you, you worked with so many actors over the years in theater and film. Who would you like to work with again if the right project came up? Gee, almost every one of them. Almost every one. Really? <laughs> <laughs> I had a wonderful time with Brando, Nicholson, those guys, Jane Fonda. Uh, Dusty. Mm-hmm. Uh, not every day with Dusty. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, uh, but he's a wonderful actor. Right? No, I, the, the, the greatest difficulty I had actually was on my first play with Henry Fonda. Mm-hmm. Why? What well, happened? Well, because he was a star, was that it? No, no. He's, he's, he's the most uh, diffident, self effacing man. You could imagine. No, he's, there's no star about him, but there is a kind of mechanical aspect to his acting. He knew how to do it, how we'd always done it in the John Ford pictures, or, you know, he knew how he did it. And here's Annie on the other side, two people in the, you know, and Annie is a deep inside actress. She's learning the method by the end. By the way, for me at this point, she's never done this kind of acting, and I kept saying, "Go with it, and what, whatever you're feeling, do it." So she, and all of a sudden, tears would start to come, and then I'd say, "Hey, Hank, you know, come on, go over there, kiss her," and he said, "She's got snot running on her." <laughs> That was the line. That was the line. So it, 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 it's that. You know, I don't mind 
uh, working with actors who are not method actors, who are not <coughs> trained that way, but, but who don't rigidify, who don't go into, <coughs> well, this is where my mark is, and this is where I did it yesterday, and this is the way I've got to do it again today. It's, it's you know, with a certain degree of, of freedom. Uh, they, that slowly works toward putting themselves in touch with their own emotions instead of simulated emotions. And that, that's the essence of it. That's all there is to good acting, is use your own real stuff, right out of your own life. Everybody has it. We all have it. All you have to do, however, is have enough courage and enough training and enough willingness <laughs> to be in touch and relaxation to be in touch with that, which is what the takes of a, a beautifully trained actor to do. But every once in a while you get an, uh, an absolute pure actress like Annie. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> To work on Broadway. That's the, that's a, the hope. Mm -hmm. With uh, choreographers? Or? Yeah, early, directors early in the Early career directors. Work, 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 work with actors. Work with the actors of your generation. Grow up with them. Work, work with them again and again. Learn from them. Teach them. Teach them what they already know and don't know they know. And that would get you there. Because what happens is then you, you come along with a generation of people who are your cohorts, who understand you, and you have this interchange. But <clears throat> don't come in knowing. You don't know. You don't know because there's something organic here that lives in this group of people, this particular group of people who happen to be in your cast at that point. And you should find that out. Find out those secrets. Find them out. They'll, they'll become visible and evident to you. What well, about the commercial aspect of it, I can't give you any advice. Because who knows what the hell goes on in the head of those money people. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's, it's a nightmare. It's really a nightmare. But uh, that's, that's the American theater. This young lady is a, is a Romanian actress. And uh, life is different in the theater there. <coughs> so, but, but where they have companies and, and those people, we don't have those. So we have to find a method that we can utilize that will put us in touch with our people with the same kind of camaraderie that they have at the Royal Shakespeare International. They're not so good. <laughs> <laughs> not by a long shot. Our, our, the money people are all intimidated. They're intimidated. They all got it. Yeah, they get finished <laughs> <laughs> Not true. We got them here. We got them here. We know how to do it. We've done it for years. This was a lively, vibrant theater at one time, not too distant a time ago. 
and it can be again. You get the British directors out of here. <laughs> Just for a while. I don't know. I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a xenophobe or chauvinist, but I'm, I'm sick to death of, of uh, seeing British uh, disposition imposed on American actors. And, and I think that what happens is that we get, we get scared and capitulate. And with all due respect for uh, some very good British actors, I mean, that was bullshit. That was pure bullshit. <laughs> they were both acting like absolute not. Now, Helen Mirren's a wonderful actress. And this was just absolutely <laughs> How do you really feel about that production? Yeah. <laughs> I figured we, we should talk frankly. Yes. <laughs> These aren't just for the archives, right? <laughs> yes. There was one American actor. Yes, there was. Yeah. Yes, yeah. And, and he's a very dear friend of mine. And he was he's a very nice guy. And miserable, very believe me. Very good actor who was lost. Oh, totally. He, was he hated, totally he hated lost. playing that part. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I I mean, I know his work very well. And he was lost. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, you, then you. What is your approach when you have to replace an actor? Do you address that? Do you have Oh, I don't know what my approach is. I really don't. I, 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 I've had to do it a couple of times. I always feel it's my fault. That somewhere I, I went awry, either somebody who I thought had this image or thought this capability and it's different from mine. But it's bloody painful. It's terrible. And I do it as infrequently as I possibly can. Well, unfortunately, I cast the, the, the way that the commercial theater cast which is, yeah, people come in and read. I don't like it. And in the uh, days when I was doing all those plays, uh, <clears throat> I would know most of the actors very well and just say, you know, I want you for this part. And that's, that was it. But nowadays, I don't know very many actors. And everybody is coming out of various places with different kinds of training. And, uh, some of it is wretched. Some of it is good, but it's awfully hard. So you, you've got to put these people up there and ask them to do this courageous thing, which is... For three minutes. <laughs> yeah, for five minutes or ten minutes. Show me your soul. You know? <laughs> and it's, it's tough. It's very tough. From sides or monologues? I prefer sides. I prefer, uh, yeah, whatever. But, uh, I don't prefer either. Actually. <laughs> How do you find out that they're not going to be How do you find out that they're not going to be You pretty much can see it. Some very, very rarely you make a mistake. But ordinarily you can see it. And I, 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 
I sort of chapped them up a bit, you know, while they're working. While they're working, I'll come down and say, yeah, is that what you're really feeling? Is that, you know? While they're reading, you know, and sort of get them derailed, get them off the track. And uh, because they come in with all prepared. <laughs> Their agent told him, this is what he's looking for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right here. Yeah, so wait, hold on. He's been waiting for a while. Sorry. Um, I was just wondering, you, with the method that you were just kind of discussing, how you direct yourself to be offering, uh, actually a lot of freedom, and that's what you encourage for them to be creators. And I was wondering, uh, do you run into a difficult time with that uh, in terms of actually having experienced that? I don't push them. I don't push them. They'll, they'll get there. They're, they're, everybody has had that experience. I mean, we all sit down and we need to play at home. <laughs> and being something radiates inside of you that, that is familiar to that experience that's described or that is encountered in the play, except it's yours. It's your experience. Because nobody told you yet what, how to do it. Mm -hmm. So no, you don't have to do that. Actors are not, are not puppets. They're not prophetic. They're not, they're not without, without pure uh, autonomy. And, and, and if you tap into that, you have, have gone to the bank. You've gone to their emotional bank. That's what you use. Arthur, just inverse of my previous question, are there actors you have not worked with that you'd like to? Specific oh, actors? Oh, yeah. yeah. There are tons of them. Uh, Meryl Streep I've never worked with. Oh, yeah. you, you know, there, there are an awful lot of good actors around. Certainly in, uh, in New York. They're not even British? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Do you know what your next project is? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I can't tell you. Are there other things that are the Uh, could I am? In terms of theater. <coughs> I'm somewhat in but but more in terms of theater. Um, you see, I, 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 I'm of the generation that grew up right on the edge of, uh, of a change in the theater. There was the basic theater, American theater, when I was a kid, uh, was essentially an imitation of the British theater. Sound familiar? And <laughs> <laughs> uh, there was Miss, Miss Kid Catherine Cornell, um, the Theatre Guild. The Theatre Guild, and ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> and Mr. Guthrie McClintock, and, uh, you know, and it was, and you went to the theatre, and they spoke their lines beautifully, and, and this is now in the Depression, and they're inhabiting a world up there that I, I, I would love to be, I have been a part of, but that's not what's happening around me out here, you know? I mean, the Depression is happening, and they're having cocktails in the drawing room. And that was, that was it. So the group theater formed. 
Now, I didn't see any of the theater productions at that stage of the game. I saw some... I saw... No, I didn't see it. I saw a later production that Strasbourg directed of The Big Knife of Odette's play. But what I did see when I came back from Europe was a production that Kazan did called Sundown Beach with a bunch of people, uh, Julie Harris, Steve Hill, Alec Nichol, the whole of a line of absolutely superb actors. And they were acting in a way that I, that I understood. I understood the life force that was up on that stage, which I, I never did understand with the theater guild, you know? And to this day, I don't know how to behave at a cocktail party. <laughs> <laughs> Great advice, directors uh, working with actors. You've had such great relationships with writers, working with writers, especially Mr. Gibson. Any thoughts on how, or any insights on working for a director, working with a playwright that you can pop into your head, especially on developing a new piece or, or working? They're all different, of course. And some of them are very uh, rigid or start out that way. Bill started out that way. Bill only knew a little bit of theater. Bill Gibson, he'd only done a little bit of theater out in Topeka, Kansas, while his wife was in training as a psychoanalyst. And uh, he, he was playing the piano in a bar, and then they had a contest out there for a playwright, for somebody, and he wrote a play called The Cry of Players. So, and The Cry of Players won. It was a wonderful play, and it was done later on by with Frank Langella and Ann Bancroft right. at Lincoln Center. So, uh, so Bill, when we started on Two for the Seesaw, over here at the New Amsterdam, there was Annie and there was Hank, and Hank was this beautiful guy, you know. Was, oh, like I said to him, this guy looks like a stallion. <laughs> and, uh, and we started rehearsing. And Bill would go, uh, that's not the one. I and, and he felt at that point that if they would just say his lines <laughs> properly, that everything would be all right. And, and, and that was part of the problem on Seesaw, out of town. We, we had this underdeveloped play, which was word perfect, but not... So at that point, I, I, I summoned up a audacity and a couple of scenes I had them improvise and then that night we were, we were now on the road playing for paying audience I put the improvisation in and Bill about blew a gut <laughs> and I said but do you see structurally what that means do you see how the play moves he said yeah but I can't stand those fucking words <laughs> And I said, go home and write. He write them. He'd run up to the hotel room, come back. But the structure of the scene was now different. That shifted. And that's the way we came to work till now we work. Really, he says, uh, we're each half of the same brain. You know, we've just grown together. Have there, have there been moments when you've been just gotten depressed or just fed up? Oh, like, just said, I, 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 
I'm packing it in. Oh, numbers of times. Yeah, I mean, the theater... The theater went to hell there for a while. Uh, Cameron McClinton. <laughs> Our gift from the other shore. Uh, those things are just disgusting. I mean, Phantom is a piece of crap. Uh, you know, they're just terrible. They're tuneless. They're without merit except the chandelier. That's, that's what he was selling. He was selling scenery. And, that, and, and the goddamn things are still running. It's just terrible. It's really terrible. But it took over the theater. And the Schubert's went along with it because, boom, real estate. Booked them in for five years, ten years, twenty years, <laughs> etc. I, I mean, we're, we're approaching some of those numbers. We, you know, cats. Disgusting. <laughs> I mean, you should have seen it in London. It was way worse. <laughs> and, and they couldn't wait to bring it here. <laughs> And then they needed a litter box, you know? <laughs> it was just dreadful. So, there, so there, you've had moments when you said, well, why am I, I doing I, this? I right. my hands, yeah. I said, right. I don't know this this life. I don't know this. This isn't what I went into the theater for. And there, wasn't, there were no plays, or at least they weren't coming to me. They were going... Maybe elsewhere, occasionally, there would be a lovely play. The Elephant Man was a lovely play. The first production, I, I understand this production is very good, too. It's very, very different. Yeah, very different. yeah but there, 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 were, there were numbers of lovely plays, but they were rare, extremely rare. And at that point, after having done this bunch of plays, after the, my disgust with the first film I made out there, I came back here and I did Seesaw and... and Right in a row, one after the other. I had, uh, I don't know how many, at least four running at the same time, maybe five, all just jammed one on top of the other. And uh, that was thrilling. That was heaven. That was, you know, the way theater should be. And then, it, it, and then I got caught up in my own ambition and ended up buying a movie deal for too much money else. And I did some movies, and uh, some were good, some were bad, but never, never quite the, the basic gratification that I get out of the theater. Never quite. Something else. I mean, it's wonderful to be. You can go to Paris and people say, oh, I'll drop in. No. <laughs> <laughs> All that bullshit. <laughs> In terms of, a, of, of gratification from your work, I think there's more than here. Well, I know we're glad he never gave up. We're glad he's back. And I want to thank Arthur for being with us tonight. Again, this is Susan Stroman, and thank you for listening to Masters of the Stage, made possible through support from Stage Directors and Choreographer Society, the National Theatrical Union celebrating five decades of uniting, empowering, and protecting professional stage directors and choreographers. 
visit us online at sdcweb.org. This online series is presented in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing, dedicated to illuminating how theatre is made through the words of the people who make theatre. Visit them online at americantheaterwing.org.